0: A contentious confirmation fight tests the U.S. Senate.
1: Shame on you! Shame on you! Mr. President, I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh.
0: President Trump strikes a deal to
2: replace NAFTA.
3: It's a privilege for them to do business with us. Oh,
0: and we're a month out from the midterms.
2: If you're a Republican running in a blue state or a blue district, what's going on is bad news. If you're a Democrat running in a red state or a red district, What's going on is bad news.
0: It's time to get caught up on what's happened and what's next. With Rachel Sutherland and John Decker, I'm Jared Halpert from Washington. A demolition derby, a caricature of a gutter-level political campaign one of the saddest, most sordid chapters in the history of the judiciary.
1: Therefore, I do not believe that these charges can fairly prevent Judge Kavanaugh from serving on the court.
0: Those are a few of the ways U.S. senators have described the nomination and confirmation debate over the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. The passion, displayed by both sides for and opposed to Kavanaugh, has been impossible to miss for those of us who work daily in the U.S. Capitol. Police presence has increased in public spaces. Senators have been escorted as they've walked from their offices to vote. As it stands, Kavanaugh appears headed to the Supreme Court to fill the vacancy left by the retirement over the summer of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Three of the four, un- Undecided senators going into the vote now say they will support confirmation, including Maine Republican Susan Collins and West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. Even with a no-vote expected from Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski, Kavanaugh has at least 51 votes. Watching all of this unfold with me this week was our senior Capitol Hill producer, Chad Pergram, who has seen toxic fights play out here before. So I asked him, can the Senate recover? and move on from this latest high-stakes fight?
4: Tensions have been off the chart. I've uh, I mean, uh,
0: i not seen it like this here in, in maybe years.
4: Right, and, and it's just not, you know, senators, a lot of tension with staff, senators themselves, reporters. I mean, there's an underground subway that runs between yeah. the Capitol and the Senate office buildings. One of the subway operators was yelling at me, that's how bad—I've never heard the subway—the I mean, subway because people have been filing back and forth, and they lashed out. It's, it's, we, cr- we've it's crazy. We've seen a police presence here, yes. senators being escorted because yes. they're
0: being confronted by sexual assault survivors and, and advocates and right. demonstrators, for, for, both for and against Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, so that being the backdrop of, of the question I'm going to ask you, is the United States Senate broken?
4: If you listen to those who have talked about the process with Brett Kavanaugh on both sides of the aisle, they will say absolutely yes. You know, there was a lot of talk about whether or not there was a scenario where they might have the procedural vote. And there's some operational reasons you do this in the middle of the night. And then you might actually have the confirmation vote about 30 hours later, very early in the morning. And somebody said, oh, wouldn't that be bad optics? And I'm like, well, (laughs) at at this point, I don't think anybody's, you know, optics and, and manners have been Emily Post. That said. You know, there's always things getting done behind the scenes. That's not, you know, the mud fight. And there have been examples of that here in the past couple of weeks. We've seen that just this week.
0: So that's what I wanted to talk to you about is given all of the, the discord and, and really, I, I, I'll i use the word toxicity that we've seen here. Senators yelling at senators, the minority leader coming dangerously close to calling the majority leader a liar. I mean, things that we have not seen happen very much in in the esteemed body of the United States Senate.
4: But you know what? And, and, but sometimes it's always like this. I mean, I remember a time in 1995. Robert Byrd was no longer the majority or minority leader, had been the Democratic leader for a long year, for many years, was had been the president pro tem. And the Republicans got control of Congress and they were they were, you know, you know, really getting their hooks into Bill Clinton at that point. President Clinton in 1995. And Byrd said, I've seen the Senate devolve this year. Uh, You know, it spiraled down. Well, that was this version of it. You know, these are different flavors of, of what goes on. And so you have. I think that always exists in some respect here in Washington. Uh, when I first came to Washington, one of the places I worked was, was C-SPAN. And, uh, and uh, Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN, he would take new employees to what he called a Lamb Lunch, Lamb lunches, and somebody said uh, this was circa 1993. And again, they were really starting to amp things up on Clinton at that point. But we weren't to 1995 yet with the Republican Re- Revolution. We were not to 1997 yet with uh, with impeachment and uh, and so on. 1997, 1998, and they said, "Oh my gosh, Brian, have you ever seen anything like this?" And he said, "None of you were here during Watergate. I wasn't here during Watergate. You weren't here during Watergate." Yeah. I, I, can, wasn't here,
0: I wasn't here for the Clinton impeachment either. And so. I was, and, yeah, I, and so. I can
4: only begin to imagine. So, But that said, there are things that they yeah. have been getting done.
0: So let's talk about what they've gotten done. Just this week, this week, with all of this going on, two major pieces of legislation passed the United States Senate with more than 90 votes. I think in one case, 98 votes. Right. A five-year FAA reauthorization. Sounds boring. A very important piece of legislation that has been uh, negotiated for an awfully long time.
4: There was also an opioids bill, right? Bipartisan, you know that that that's a big deal. Uh, you know what else didn't happen? They didn't shut down the government, right? The appropriations Almost, process has been going bipartisan say, fashion. Swimmingly. Yes, yeah. you know, you know it was it was so funny a week ago Friday, last Friday in September, big group of reporters outside McConnell's office. If you would have sent me to Mars and come back and said, Chad, it's, a, it's late September, and there's this interpret for us, decode this for There's this big group of reporters outside McConnell's office, and it's close to the end of the government's fiscal year. What's going on? I said, well, of course, they're, 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 they're reporting because they, they're afraid there's going to be a government shutdown.
0: I had sort of carved out having to work this weekend but I thought it would be for that reason. Right, and the, <laughs> and
4: they worked out an agreement. Yeah. Most of the appropriation b- bills have gotten done. They got more done in the Senate on the appropriations bills faster than they had in decades. So
0: explain to me this disconnect. How can there be so much anger over the Supreme Court nomination, but, you know, the stuff that doesn't get nearly as much attention, and maybe the media plays a role in that, and, and that's a fair criticism. What is that disconnect?
4: Well, you know, I think that lawmakers are, are pretty good about compartmentalizing issues. They realize, okay, there's something in that appropriations bill that helps the VA. I have this problem with the VA in my state or district. Uh, there's an issue in there that deals with energy and water spending. There's an energy project in my district. Okay, let's not mess that up. Opioids, I'm, I represent a, an area in, in rural- That's been
0: bipartisan. Every every district in America yes, has been Yes, in hit rural by that. Indiana, yeah. Kentucky,
4: wherever. And, and so opioids is an issue. Uh, I do think that lawmakers look at these things through these different prisms. And if it's something that's good for their district or their state or necessary, they do it. But but they could say, look, you know, uh, we you know we are on the left in my state, and uh, we don't like Brett Kavanaugh because we're afraid of what he's going to do to abortion rights, and we're afraid of what he's going to do to uh, the the health care bill or whatever else. And I'm going to vote against him. So once this
0: confirmation process has passed and it's over, and the Senate comes back, are these relationships? Do they need to be repaired, or are we going to see, you know we're not going to see bipartisan retreats, right? We're not going to have like a a kumbaya around the campfire. But what's the process here to to sort of rebuild some of that trust that has been built up over this, you know, appropriations process or opioid bill or FAA negotiation or water bill negotiation?
4: Well, some of that could be dictated by the midterm elections. I mean, if the Democrats win the House, they probably win the House with moderate Democrats representing swing or Trump. Favorable districts, sure. and those folks can't go out and shout from the mountaintop about how bad Brett Kavanaugh is. Uh, they have to be moderates, and they have to kind of work across the aisle with other folks. So that's one way that it does that. The other, but the the flip side of that though is. The flip side of that, though, is maybe Democrats do win the House or for that matter, the Senate, because people are energized now because of Kavanaugh. And they show up and say, guess what? We won. Elections have consequences. You know, this has been the whole thing of the resistance against uh, Donald Trump Uh, that could inflame it even further. But all of these things, Jared, are cyclical. Uh, This is the cycle that we're living in now. Um, Was it really intense when Tom DeLay was the majority leader and and, and there were a lot of Republican congressmen getting in trouble? Was it really intense when Bill Clinton was in office uh, and and impeachment happened? Was it really bad when Barack Obama won and Mitch McConnell said, we're going to do everything we can to block his agenda? I mean, how much of that has really changed based on what we're hearing in the day-to-day rhetoric? Not much.
0: So you're saying we've been here before.
4: It's not that we've always been there before. This is where we always are.
0: <laughs> this is our, our this default is our position. Existence. This okay. is
4: this is our this is the terra firma where we stand.
0: So I suppose to answer the question I first asked: Is the Senate broken? Not any more than it's usually been.
4: That's right. I I think one of the most amazing stories in political history is one of the most, uh, one of the least addressed. And it's because I think a lot, and I'm not trying to beat up historians here, but I think there's not a lot of, of literature about it because they slough it off as a caretaker presidency. So you had the election of 1840. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Harrison, John Tyler. Well, Harrison gets sick, deadly sick, and dies in a month. Uh, because he gave a multi-hour, yeah, you know, inauguration, and didn't, and didn't speech. wear a coat. That's right, and, <laughs> and in those days it was in March, and it yeah, was, you know, yeah. cold and raining and everything else. So Tyler is down in Richmond, realizes, finds out somehow how sick uh, the president is. He's the vice president. Hightails it back to Washington. Harrison dies. They swear in Tyler, and the Speaker of the House at the time says. Well, you're not the president. And he pulls out the guy. He says, no, right here. It says right here, president, because we'd never done the line of succession thing. And so for three years and 11 months, imagine that three years and 11 months, the guy was president who wasn't the one who was elected. And if you go back and look at most of the filibusters of uh, Supreme Court justices and cabinet officials when the cabinet was just a handful of people in those days and things, it's off the chart. Because they didn't view Tyler as legitimate. Imagine how how tense that would have been. Imagine the Tyler presidency in the age of Twitter. Even C-SPAN. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it's always been this way in some form.
0: I really appreciate this conversation, Chad. This is a good reference point for what we've seen this week, where we've been, where we're headed. And it sounds like perhaps we can view this, um, even after this week, as the glass half full.
4: Absolutely. It, it always is. Um, Oh, I'll leave you with this there's a song in the, on the Simpsons uh, about the lesser known presidents and this is in their, yes. they're doing a President's yes. Day uh, episode and these guys come out on stage and say we are the lesser known presidents you won't find our pictures on dollar or a there's Taylor, there's Tyler there's, there's Fillmore and there's Hayes there's William Henry Harrison he died in 30 days
0: very well said, Chad Pergram thanks so much my pleasure There's a new acronym to learn. President Trump announced Monday he has struck a deal with Canada and Mexico to do away with the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Instead, he says there's a new deal for Congress to approve, the USMCA, or if you prefer longhand, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement.
3: It's a privilege for them to do business with us. And I'm not talking about Mexico. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody.
0: President Trump is also trying to reset trade relationships with China, Europe and Japan. But let's stick with the present for now and dive a bit deeper into this new North American trade pact, what it means for U.S. companies and U.S. consumers. What could cost you more? What could cost you less? Our White House correspondent John Decker was in the Rose Garden for the president's announcement and joins me to answer those questions.
5: It's called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. The president, a shorthand for it is USMCA. Uh, and it still needs to be approved by Congress, which is no easy task, especially when you consider that Congress, come January of next year, could be in the hands of Democrats, uh, depending, of course, on the midterm elections. And it's uh, likely going to be in 2019 that Congress needs to vote on this trade agreement. That's
0: the big dynamic here. And I know you had an opportunity to ask the president about his level of confidence over Congress ratifying this, right?
5: I did, uh, because that's uh, the big unknown. You know, you can celebrate what you accomplished in terms of the negotiations between the parties involved, trade negotiators from Mexico and Canada, uh, but it does not take effect unless Congress ratifies it. And if Democrats control the House, if they control the Senate, uh, we've seen this before play out, uh, Jared. Democrats are very uh, reluctant to give the president a victory on anything. And the president spoke about that when I asked him about this. He believes that they are very political. And so even he acknowledged that it's no easy task to get congressional support for this trade agreement.
0: You know, it'll be interesting to watch, John, because you and I have both covered these trade issues um, and, you know, historically and traditionally. And I don't know if those are words that apply to the era we're living in right now, but uh, it has been Democrats who have been far more um, willing to scrap NAFTA and some of these other free trade agreements than Republicans. It has been. Uh, Democrats who have been much more reluctant to enter new trade agreements. You'll recall the, the difficult slog President Obama had getting his own party on board with some of the trade deals he tried to put in place. So the, the political dynamics here may not be as conventional as people may, may think moving forward.
5: Well, that's exactly right. I covered NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And NAFTA would not have passed Congress without the support of Republicans. President Clinton would not have received, you know, gotten that, that victory on NAFTA were it not for Republicans. Democrats, by and large, were against it because they felt that it put labor, organized labor, in a bad position uh, vis-a-vis Mexico and Canada. So you're absolutely right. It's a interesting dynamic uh, we don't know what it would mean necessarily if Democrats would be in control of Congress uh, as you know Republicans uh, trad- traditionally are more internationalists when it comes to trade agreements uh, and so they would likely be on board but uh, this is it's all a big unknown uh, and we'll have to wait and see as they say in 2019 when Congress ultimately votes on this trade accord
0: the details will matter greatly. Um, so what are we learning about the details? You know, you mention um, the complaints that organized labor in particular had with NAFTA. The White House seems to think that, that a lot of those issues are, are solved in this revamp, right?
5: say that this particular agreement, uh, compared with the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, uh, is a better one as it relates to organized labor. At the same time, we haven't seen labor come out and embrace this. Uh, that's something uh, you would think the political arm of the White House would certainly be seeking. Uh, but as far as what's different else besides that uh, versus NAFTA, uh, you have to look at the auto industry, the auto sector. That's a, a major difference. And so what is the major difference? More car parts, more car uh, cars would have to, under the agreement, be manufactured right here in the USA versus Canada or Mexico. Uh, There's a certain percentage of car parts that must be manufactured in America under NAFTA. That percentage would go up under the USMCA. uh, And so that is considered a big win for the auto sector. Another industry which would benefit, according to the White House, is dairy farmers. Uh, They, according to the White House, would actually uh, have more of the Canadian market open to them to sell their product uh, than exists right now under NAFTA. One of the,
0: the the concerns that always comes with these trade deals is what sort of disruptions there may be in the consumer sector, right? What what may go up in price, what may go down in price? Is there any indication of anything like that uh, when you compare this USMCA to, to NAFTA?
5: Well, the initial reaction as it relates to the auto industry is that... Uh, according to various experts, they say the price of an automobile manufactured in the U.S. would actually go up. Why is that? Because under the USMCA, more jobs making those autos and auto parts would have to be here in America, which means that the labor cost per hour to build that vehicle would go up versus what it would cost to build that vehicle or build those auto parts in In Canada or Mexico. So the auto industry would likely pass those increased costs on to consumers. The other element of this,
0: I guess, is what this has done to to the relationship between these three countries. Right. Sort of reset if you can. You know, we don't often think of Canada as an adversary, but it seems like sometimes uh, the comments that the president made before this announcement uh, would lead you to believe otherwise.
5: The president says that he and the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, have a very businesslike relationship, uh, which might be diplomatic speak for saying uh, they can be in the same room and be pleasant with each other, but they don't see eye to eye on many things, and maybe their personal relationship is not so great. Uh, The same cannot be said for uh, the leader of Mexico, with whom the U.S. negotiated this agreement. Keep in mind, Mexico was the first country that came to some sort of agreement on a trade deal with the U.S. It was Canada that was last to sign onto it. That's uh, what happened over the course of the last week. And but it sounded just...
0: like the, the U.S. got some help with the incoming president of Mexico. They, they have like a really long inaugural sort of transition in Mexico. So they've had an election, but the new president didn't take over, but but played a pretty big role in, in crafting this deal?
5: He did, and that was helpful to the process. Uh, I think there uh, was no love lost between the current leader of Mexico and the president in terms of some of the things that they've said out of a personal nature um, about each other over the course of the past year. But the incoming president, uh, who is more of a nationalist uh, than the current uh, leader of Mexico uh, was someone who uh, saw some benefits of the new USMCA, as the administration calls it, and urged uh, the person that he will succeed to go ahead and sign this agreement.
0: It's hard not to get the the uh, village people song stuck in your head every time you hear a USMCA. <laughs> but, right. Um... We'll see moving forward. Then, as you say, a lot still to work out. In the interim, does anything happen with NAFTA? That's not, that's not dead yet, right? The, no, the NAFTA, still-
5: NAFTA is still the agreement uh, that the U.S., Mexico, and Canada uh, must abide by. No one's okay. pulled out of NAFTA. The president's threatened that over the course of the past year and a half plus. Uh, but the U.S. is still abiding, as is Mexico and Canada, by all the terms of the North American Free Trade Agreement.
0: So we'll wait and see uh, when the details are presented to Congress and how quickly Congress then can, can take action. John Decker, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Jared.
1: Trump is known for saying a lot without saying much at all, and she sent a message this week with her first solo trip as first lady. I'm Rachel Sutherland with a look at Mrs. Trump's four-nation tour of Africa. Visiting the continent wasn't unusual in itself. Other first ladies have gone to Africa, but given the animus her husband drew when he referred to African nations as S-hole countries, her choice spoke volumes. Mrs. Trump sent a clear message at a school in Malawi when she praised the work of the U.S. Agency for International Development, whose funding President Trump has proposed cutting by 30 percent. I wanted to be here to see the successful programs that the United States is providing to the children. And thank you for educating them to be best, to, to be their best, and to grow up in a educated adult's uh, for generations to come. There was a safari of photo ops for reporters. Mrs. Trump visited with children and their mothers in a hospital, toured classrooms, handed out toys, and held a baby. She also paid a visit to the Cape Coast Castle and laid a wreath at the door of no return. That's the place where African men were held before they were loaded on the ships bound for a life of slavery in the Americas. She spoke to reporters about her experience. How does it feel to be here, Mrs. Trump? It's great. Very emotional. So. What,
3: what are
0: your
1: impressions? What did you write in the guestbook, Mrs. Trump? I just said thank you for your warm welcome. We love Melania Trump. And this is a very special place. Uh, I will never forget. Uh, incredible experience. And the stories that I heard from the gentlemen. It's uh, really, really touching. And uh, the dungeons that I saw—it's really something that uh, people should see and experience. And what happened so many years ago—it's uh, really a tragedy.
0: How does it make you feel okay. today? Okay,
1: thank you. Thank you, guys. For While in Ghana, the First Lady stopped in at Obama Hall. Named after President Obama, she had a private meeting with the First Lady of Malawi. And while in Kenya, Mrs. Trump was almost knocked over by a baby elephant. President Trump, who's never visited Africa as president, gave a glowing review of his wife's trip on Twitter. He wrote, she's doing a great job as First Lady, I will tell you, really great. And you think that's an easy job? That's not an easy job. That's a tough job. She's fantastic. Andy Oak is a historian and self-described First Lady's man.
3: There's a lot of planning, a lot of careful planning. Uh, you know, she's under a microscope with everything she does, as she always has been and First Ladies before her. But this one trying to sort of separate herself from her husband in her public image and being a woman of her own, a First Lady of her own terms and desires and and advocating the things that she feels strongly about and we see children and health care as, as a topping those lists and when she does go out in support of these events we see that genuine interest in her in the way she acts and the way she smiles and the way she interacts with the people that she's visiting. Um, I think it's really good for her and for the world to see her in this genuine uh, interest, a role that she has with these philanthropies.
1: What are some of the key moments so far for you from uh, Melania's trip that stand out?
3: Well, I think the careful choice of where she's going. You know, she's hitting all four corners of the continent, north, south, east, west. She's trying to to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time and I think that that shows the world that she does has an have an interest in this taking an active role in spreading the love of children and the want for for healthy children and a good future for all of them so I think it's very important just the visuals you know she's she's always dressed appropriately she's always dressed uh, very well and 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 not too much and not too little And I think that's very well received and seeing how these people smile and welcome her. These first ladies, you know, they're they're celebrities on the world stage. They always have been. And as they act as ambassadors for the United States and in a certain sense, their husband's administrations, I think it's very important. It's also very important for her, the, the, the image of her going to Africa where... President Trump has had some issues and he's caught a lot of criticism for things that he said. It shows that she's not afraid to step out from under his administration, out from under his wing and, and cut an image that is uniquely hers as First Lady.
1: Do you think that's part of the reason why she chose Africa?
3: I, I think 100 percent. You know, she's come out, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the, uh, uh, the, the camps for, for the border camps with the children and families and separating families. She's been outspoken about that. Uh, various sports figures who have had some altercations with her husband uh, she has come out in favor of that person she doesn 't directly contradict her husband she 's very smart in that way, and she doesn 't go completely against him. but with what she watches on on her planes and her her spokespeople saying she can watch whatever she wants, her husband does not dictate and and I think a lot of people have had this conception that the misconception that she is completely under his control and under his thumb, and she's not an individual. And I think this is just one more thing and very intentional to go to Africa to spread that word that she is an individual. She has her own mind. She has her own thoughts. She has her own causes, and she supports them very genuinely.
1: Have other first ladies traveled to Africa?
3: Uh, Yeah, Mrs. Bush. uh, Laura Bush was one of the most traveled first ladies. The, the most traveled first lady in modern times at one point was was Pat Nixon and she did it very very quietly but very effectively and went to all corners of the earth including Africa uh, 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 Hillary Clinton took over that role as most traveled first lady and Laura Bush exceeded uh, Hillary Clinton especially in a post 9/11 world where Laura Bush changed her entire domestic policy for children's literacy and education and reading uh, to go on a global Scale of women's rights and women's education all over the world, and the Bush administration was so effective and so involved in Africa and malaria, particularly in uh, sub Saharan Africa, that Mrs. Bush was very well traveled in Africa. And of course, the Obamas visited Africa, uh, I, I, I want to say, a, a, a number of times, um, uh, given the, President Obama's heritage on his father's side. And uh, and Mrs. Trump uh, sees Africa as a, as a, a, a big part of the, the global health problem and the global health issues that still uh, uh, plague that continent and all the countries there within. And I think it, it, it shows that she is giving a, a proper nod to administrations in the past who have realized – what an issue, and, and, and how important the continent of Africa is, because poor health leads to poor people, which leads to uh, fostering terrorism and, and, and all the, the bad things that are happening in our world outside of health, or as a side effect, to trickle down with, with the health problems. And it's a very good place for Melania Trump to be, and a very smart
1: move. You mentioned um, some of the more well-traveled First Ladies. Were there any First Ladies who were just homebodies, didn't really go anywhere? Oh, <laughs> yes
3: a a number there were there were a number of first ladies that didn't uh i mean you go back historically uh, it's it's always remarkable to me to see these two in comparison dolly madison never traveled outside of the united states she was born in the british colonies she stayed in the british colonies and in america but her successor uh elizabeth monroe was a very well internationally traveled first lady um but going back to to more modern times You had first ladies like Jacqueline Kennedy that went all over the world, but uh, another first lady right after her, Lady Bird Johnson, stayed very domestic with her Beautification of America project, and there were just less reasons for her to travel, given the time and element and sort of mood and feel of the world, but then Mrs. Nixon would come in and do, as I said, uh, one of the most well, well-traveled uh, First Ladies in, in history. Uh, she went to South, uh, well, China, of course, with the historic trip with President Nixon, the first president and first lady to do so. Then you've got Barbara Bush, who was massively uh, traveled in her pre-White House uh, 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 work and, and efforts. But um, Nancy Reagan did a little bit of international travel, but she was more of a domestic policy first lady with the Just Say No campaign. Um, uh, but but it, it, it is very interesting to compare and contrast the, the international versus national travels of these first ladies.
1: All right, Andy, thanks for joining me.
5: Always.
0: One month. That's all that separates this week's From Washington podcast from the midterm elections. Then again, that could be an eternity. What's clear is voters are starting to make up their minds in many of these crucial swing states considered key to both parties trying to win control of Congress. That is evident in the latest batch of Fox News polls, looking at those Senate races in North Dakota, Arizona, Indiana, Tennessee, and Missouri. Fox News politics editor Chris Steierwalt has dug into the numbers. He's back on the podcast to figure out where we stand in the campaign's final month.
2: Democrats engaged in this total scorched-earth battle over Brett Kavanaugh on the grounds that, hey, they might win the Senate. It, it was and still is shaping up to be a good year for Democrats overall. Uh, they might win the Senate, and if so, they could hold the seat open and keep it open into 2020 and return the favor to Republicans who had, uh, had done something not that audacious but uh, had held open the seat uh, when uh, – Uh, Justice, uh, Scalia passed away. They held that seat open and denied Merrick Garland a hearing. So Democrats were talking big. The irony for Democrats, of course, is the way that their map is constructed this year, and this is a, this is a long-term problem that Democrats are going to have to address. In a republic, you cannot be a party that is confined to big cities on the coasts. It will not work. Um, it's, it's simply not, it simply, from an electoral standpoint, won't work. And if they want to be competitive in these Senate seats, they're going to have to have people who are an awful lot more like Joe Manchin running in places like this. They're going to have to have room for Democrats in the interior, uh, who can do what people like John Tester, uh, and Joe Manchin do, which is hold in red states. And th- that, that is, that is an open question. But the way the map works out for them, You've got the big four West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota. If they lose two of those, there's no way, like there's zero way for them to get there. Um, those are the most vulnerable. In, those are the most vulnerable seats where Democrats are playing defense. Now they've tried to add Florida. You know, Republicans have tried to add Florida into the mix too, um, but that has been of a less of less clear uh, direction. Rick Scott believes he can pull it out in the end. That might cha- for for Democrats. That's another unhappy point. But let's say, for the sake of argument that uh, that they can hold in Florida, Democrats can hold in Florida, and lose two of the four most vulnerable seats there, uh, the West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota. If they can hold two of those, then they still, still, <laughs> have to sort of shoot the moon. They would need to win because they have to they have to push the seat. The, the Republicans have a two seat majority and they uh, they're they're barely there, so they would have to push it back the other way. They'd have to beat Dean Heller in Nevada, the incumbent Republican. They'd have to take Jeff Flake's open seat uh, in Arizona, and then they would either have to win the open seat in Tennessee, uh, where former Governor Phil Bredesen is running against Marshall Blackburn or knock off Ted Cruz in Texas. Um, I don't see those. And I think that the Kavanaugh fight makes those uh, uh, strongly less likely, uh, certainly more so for O'Rourke than it is for Bredesen, who has found uh, a better way to stand here in relation to the wishes of the voters of his state. But the the window is getting very, very narrow for Democrats to get through.
0: I know you're a college football guy. I would be like third and 10 right now.
2: Oh, I would say a little better than third and ten i would say, I would say third and long I would okay. say they they're they're at third and long with Hyde camp in, in as much trouble as Hyde camp is, and you just have to assume that out of the other two it's hard it 's hard to see three of those four winning Now, I know
0: we are looking at the Senate map, obviously for Democrats, their bright spot is the house map they They have a lot of enthusiasm there they think that this blue wave is going to change the the direction of the House. Um, you talked about how voter intensity, this enthusiasm gap, is closed a little bit as a result of the Kavanaugh nomination. Obviously, the House doesn't have anything to do with that, but does this have any sort of coattails that, that some of these House candidates are, are going to be able to ride? Does it tell you these Senate, the Senate polls tell you anything uh, about the direction the House may be headed?
2: Well, let me make it simple. No matter what, now we have a month to go to the election and that is several geologic eras by yes. political, uh, of political time in 2018. So a lot may change. Um, but for now— You don't say now,
0: the way it's been going.
2: Right. For, you know, if we think about what things were like a month ago versus what they are now, but— But they were like it, Monday as
0: a result of Friday.
2: Exactly. <laughs> um, so the—I'll um, put it this way. If you are playing out of position— if you're a Republican running in a blue state or a blue district, what's going on is bad news. If you, but conversely, if you're a Democrat running in a red state or a red district, what's going on is bad news. That's, that's what it adds up to. Uh, it adds up to – so let's, let's, take a, let's do a hypothetical. So let's say you are um, one of these endangered Republicans in Southern California and you're in um, a district that voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, this is bad news because it's intensifying the Democratic base. It's firing women up. It's doing all of this stuff that's going to be bad for you. But if you are a Republican looking to hold on in, let's say, the suburbs of Dallas, or let's say you're Pete Sessions. Good uh, example, who, yeah. Who's, who's, who's looking to hold on. This is good news because what has happened here, the two sides of the current Republican coalition, uh, which are traditional Republicans, these are college-educated uh, predominantly white voters, um, they, uh, college educated, uh, incomes of more than $100,000. So this is, uh, upper middle class. Uh, that's the, the bread ba- the traditional breadbasket of Republican votes. Um, they are joined in their coalition with, uh, an enormous surge for Republican standards of voters from, uh, households that earn less than $30,000 a year. Uh, these are the blue collar. These are the lunch pail. These are however the working class white voters. Uh, that Donald Trump, I believe, did 16 points better with voters who have household incomes of $30,000 or less than Mitt Romney did four years prior. Um, That coalition, part of the reason for the lack of Republican intensity was that uh, both uh, – you have the Trump voters who were voting for Trump in spite of the fact that he was a Republican. And then on the other side, you have Republicans who voted for Republican candidates up and down the line but didn't vote for Trump. So that's a problem going into midterms where you have traditional Republicans who are down on their own party, but you also have Trump voters who aren't particularly enthusiastic about Republicans by coming together with an issue that fires up conservatives, the Supreme Court always fires up conservatives. It certainly did in 2016. And then you marry it with what is basically a cultural issue, um, sort of a reactionary backlash against the Me Too movement. You put those two things together and you have that special magic that has evened out the intensity measures for Republicans and Democrats.
0: Timing is everything, even in politics, and it is going to be interesting to see, as you point out, what events are going to happen between now and Election Day, uh, just about a month away, that, that could tell us even more about what the outcome is going to be here.
2: Well, look, we Donald Rumsfeld tells us about the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns. Um, w- there are some known unknowns, uh, which is to say we'll have more economic News. Uh, we don't know exactly what it'll say. Um, we will have uh, Mueller developments. We don't know what they will be. Uh, we will have whatever we have for the next month. But then there are the unknown unknowns. There are the things like um, what happened with Kavanaugh. If you would have said there would be a tough, con- uh, a contentious fight, yes, that it would be contested uh, so contentiously over the Me Too movement, uh, you know, that was that that changed the calculus a great deal. So I would just say. In 28 – you know, we live in dog years now. Uh, everything happens so fast. There's so much uh, that every day feels like seven. Um, I would just – I would tell folks this has been a reset. This has been a game changer in a pretty substantial way that has taken what was looking like a, a route for Republicans into something maybe it, maybe tough but endurable. Um, but there is a long way to go from here to there.
0: I am looking forward to to having many more conversations with you between now and then. Chris Steyrwald, thanks so much. You bet. That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week. Next week, a reset for the Senate coming off that bitter fight over Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. We'll take a look at what is left to do before the midterms. And again, look at the landscape in a few of the races most important for control of Congress. Between now and then, the best way to keep up with everything here in Washington and beyond is our top of the hour newscast. You can hear it on your radio, the Fox News app, or your smart speaker. And if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to the Fox News Rundown to get you ready for the day ahead every Monday through Friday. Be sure to give From Washington and our other podcast a rating and review as well. For all of us at Fox News Radio, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington.